Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm speaking with a colleague from the world of law who just happens to be a food and a craft beer enthusiast. And this person lives in that city oh so dear to my heart, Las Vegas, Nevada. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Happy Friday, and thanks for joining me here for the Chef Demoni podcast. If you're a regular Chef Demoni listener, welcome back. I really appreciate you being here with me. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome to Chef Demoni. This show is all about food. It's about restaurants, it's about chefs, and it's about dining experiences. The people I talk to on the show come from the two groups of people that I happen to know best, and that's simply because I've done both of these jobs over the years. Those people are chefs and they're lawyers. And that's why the tagline of Chef Demoni is talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers. Mostly, I do speak with chefs on the show, but today I'm delighted to be bringing you an interview with a lawyer. My guest today is Laura Tucker, and Laura is a senior deputy attorney general with the AG, the Attorney General of Nevada. She works in consumer protection, and at the beginning of our interview, we talk about Laura's work, which I find to be really interesting. But, of course, we quickly focus our discussion on what Chef Demoni is all about, and that is food. Laura and I start our food talk with her experiences in Reno, in the northern part of Nevada, and I learned from Laura that there's a really great craft beer scene in Reno. Now, when it comes to beer drinking, is a little knowledge a dangerous thing? Is too much knowledge a dangerous thing? In other words, if you know a whole lot about beer, do you run the risk of concentrating too much on flavor profiles or how it's made and not just enjoying the beer as a beer? We get into that. And is too much variety a bad thing? Is it too distracting? Can drinking beer become more about trying something different just for the sake of different, rather than enjoying a beer that you know you're going to like? Laura and I get into that too. And after talking about Reno and the craft beer scene there, we shift our discussion to southern Nevada and to the city that Laura now calls home. And that city, of course, is fabulous Las Vegas. Now, Laura, like most locals in Vegas, she doesn't regularly frequent the Strip. You're much more likely to find her in downtown Las Vegas in a neighborhood called Fremont East. Laura talks about this place on the show today, and I absolutely agree with her. Fremont East is a fantastic neighborhood. You'll hear some of Laura's recommendations for places to visit in Fremont East on today's show. Now, we also do get into some places on the Strip, because of course, how could we not? And I also get Laura's thoughts on a question that I think about perhaps more than I should. Just what are the similarities in the jobs between being a lawyer and being a chef? There actually are some. All right, for all of that and more, join me now. Here's my interview with Las Vegas attorney, restaurant, food, and craft beer enthusiast, Laura Tucker. Well, it's a beautiful Saturday morning, at least here in Gibsons, BC. I'm looking out at the water and blazing sunshine, which is uh, very different from what it was two weeks ago on our wedding day. Um, and I'm happy to be speaking to Laura Tucker remotely in Las Vegas. So, Laura, thanks very much for joining me and being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Graham, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our talk. What's What's the weather doing in Vegas right now? Is it blazing sunshine for you, too? It is blazing sunshine, and it's actually gorgeous right now because it's our kind of one week of transition <laughs> from <laughs> blazing hot summer to a little bit of a chilly winter. So we're kind of in our week of fall right now, but it's perfect right now. It's We've got uh, lots of sunshine here, and the temperatures are in the 80s, so it's great. 
Wonderful. Yeah, that does sound great. I remember years ago talking to one of the cooks at Bouchon and asking about when the best time to visit Vegas was. And she was saying right around this time, she said, basically, we have one good month where it's not (laughs) screaming hot or in the blah of winter. Yes, exactly. Now, Chef Demoni, as you know, is all about food, but your work as a lawyer sounds really interesting. So I just want to touch on it briefly. I understand you're a senior deputy attorney general with the Nevada Attorney General's Office in Consumer Protection. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your work is as a lawyer? Yes. So as you said, I work in the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Nevada Attorney General's Office. I have been there for pretty close to six years now. Basically, what I do is I investigate and prosecute deceptive trade issues. And the way that I always explain it to lay people is if someone is trying to sell you something and they tell you a lie while they're selling it to you, that's deceptive trade. Just bare bones. We also uh, investigate a lot of privacy issues. So whenever you hear about the big data breaches, we'll investigate those and try to see if the companies did everything they could to keep their promises to consumers to keep their data safe. We also do a couple of charity issues as well. So if charity is a little bit different because they're not really trying to sell something, but if they're bringing in money, they have to use the money for what they say they're going to. We also do mortgage issues to make sure that there's Basically, that the banks or the lenders are truthful when they're lending you money about the terms. So that's kind of just a really brief overview of what I do. But it's actually, I love it because it's a very broad area of law and it's a lot of fun. And I generally feel like I get to help people. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking on the mortgage side, is that, I I guess, a blindingly obvious question? There must be a lot more focus on that area than there was 10, 12 years ago prior to the 2008 collapse. Has that been sort of a growth industry, I guess, in the legal world, taking a look at lending practices that might range from aggressive to to outright fraudulent? Yes. So, Actually, right around the collapse is when this was very big in in the years following when it was actually before I was with the office because I was still in law school during that time. But it became a very big deal at the attorney general's office to um, investigate and um, bring lawsuits against various banks. Um, And then there was a very large nationwide settlement that um, a lot of people know about with multiple states. Ever since then, there's been a lot more scrutiny as far as from regulators making sure that the banks are actually doing what they promised that they would do under the terms of the settlement. And I know I'm in the process right now of purchasing a home, and this will be the second time I've done this process, and it's entirely different than it was the last time because the last time I bought a house, it was pre-collapse. And it seems like there's a lot more hoops to jump through this time and a lot more meetings with various people associated with the lender and with the builder and everything else. So it's just a very different process. I think as a result of all of the legal battles that went on in the years following the collapse. Right. That makes sense. That sounds uh, similar to something that's happened here in recent years. The federal government imposed a what they call a stress test for mortgage qualification And my very basic understanding is that as a borrower, you have to qualify not only for what the lender is is requiring at 
current mortgage rates. So if those are 3%, you qualify for however much you qualify for, but they also tack 2% onto that as the stress level and make sure that you would be able to meet the payments under that uh, amount as well should interest rates rise. So it's, yeah, I think it's, it's all part of a broader effort to cool the housing market here. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, interesting times for sure. Anyway, well, that is very interesting, but we've got to get to to food, of course. So I understand you're fairly recently returned to Vegas, and we're definitely going to come to the Vegas food scene later in our talk. But perhaps we could start with you telling the listeners where you were before coming back to Vegas about a year ago, I think. Yes. So I grew up here in Vegas. I've been here since I was three years old. And but about um, right when I started with the Attorney General's office, I actually moved up to Reno, Nevada, which for people who are not very familiar with the state, it's a very big state. It takes about seven hours to drive in between Las Vegas and Reno, and there's not very much in between. <laughs> um, <laughs> lots, lots of highway. <laughs> yes. So Reno is very different than Las Vegas it's still the desert. It's the high desert. It's a, a, somewhere around 5,000 feet above sea level. So it's it's a little bit more green up there. It's definitely very mountainous up there, very kind of the mountain mentality up there where people are very outdoorsy. It's, of course, uh, I lived 45 minutes from Lake Tahoe when I was up there, which is absolutely beautiful. And everyone up there does some kind of outdoor sport. So they might, you know, do stand up paddle boarding or sailing. A lot of people do skiing or mountain biking, uh, rock climbing. It's just a very outdoorsy type community, probably kind of similar to, you know, Boulder, Colorado, or or somewhere in the Pacific Northwest where, where people are just really into being outside. Okay. So it was definitely a change. Reno is also... A lot smaller than Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. I've been there once about 12 years ago. Yeah. And certainly that was my impression too. Much, much tinier. Yes. And then also, if you haven't been in 12 years, it's changed a lot. Even while I was there. So I lived there for about five years before I transferred back to Vegas a year ago. And in that time frame, Reno grew a lot. And a lot of my friends who had actually gone to the university up there, UNR, when they came to visit me from Vegas, they told me, oh, Reno's changed so much even since I was an undergrad up here. There's a lot of uh, tech boom going on in Reno right now. They're getting a Tesla plant. It's It actually might be done being built by now. There's a lot of software companies up there. Um, a lot of companies are coming over from Silicon Valley because it is actually very close to the Northern California border. Mm -hmm, right. Because like, Tahoe's just, just across the border. Into yes, California, exactly. Right? Yeah. So a lot of the California companies are coming over to Nevada because we don't have a state income tax and California has a pretty high state income tax. So a lot of the companies were, were being seduced by that to come over and start building up in Nevada. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Reno, as yeah, I'm sure it has changed since I've been there. And I was there very, very briefly. So I didn't get a good sense of the town, really. But I think you mentioned this, it was something, and maybe still is, something of a leader in an area that you're interested in, which is the, the craft beer scene. Is that right? Yes. Surprisingly, a lot of people may not realize this, but Reno has a really great craft beer scene. 
I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's the mountains <laughs> or the water. <laughs> right. Um, but up there, they, they have a lot of breweries for the number of people. I don't really know offhand uh, per capita, but that was one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised about when I moved up to Reno. I actually was not a beer drinker when I started law school, but I was I was introduced to craft beer from my boyfriend. Before that, I'd never had craft beer. I'd only had, you know, the crappy stuff that <laughs> you get everywhere. Right. And what, what a buddy of mine calls uh, macro brew. Exactly. Yes. So I, I was I got into beer here in Vegas, but when I moved up to Reno, it was a whole new world. They're very into their craft beer up there. There's a lot of different breweries, some really good, solid breweries up there. And I would highly recommend just a weekend trip of craft brewery crawling in Reno because you would not be disappointed. That sounds great, actually. You know, it sounds a little bit like, in terms of the outdoors, and I think even the size of it, it sounds a bit like Squamish, which is halfway between Vancouver and Whistler, and a big rock climbing, skiing, mountain biking, you know, kite surfing, all of that kind of stuff goes on up there. And as in so many places in BC, an exploding craft beer scene. So you're right, that sounds like it could be a super fun weekend. Yes, exactly. Reno is definitely kind of like a a kind of a big ski town, basically, just, you know, right next to Tahoe with all the skiing. And so it has a lot of the same characteristics. And and tell us about, um, I think you actually formed a group there in Reno connected to, or I guess for exploring the craft beer scene called Barley's Angels. Yes, I did. So when I moved up there, it was kind of my first time going out into the world in a new place. Uh, where I didn't have the established friend set of school or work because most of the people at work were maybe a little bit older than I was. And then obviously I didn't go to school with anyone that was up in Reno. So I'd been up there for about a year and I looked around and I was like, okay, I need to find some way to make some friends up here. <laughs> sure. And I, I had actually read about a group in uh, the uh, Vegas magazine that I still picked up every now and then that was called the Pink Boot Society. And that is a an organization for female craft beer brewers. And I went and checked out their website and it said something like, you know, we're exclusively for professional brewers. But if you're a woman who really enjoys consuming craft beer, you should check out uh, Barley's Angels, which is a an organization for women who like to drink craft beer. So I went and checked them out and realized that there was no chapter in Reno, um, but that I that there was a chapter in Vegas and that I actually knew the president. <laughs> oh, so, yes. So I reached out to her and she was like, oh, yes, you should definitely start one in Reno. It's so great. And I I had one other friend up there who was also into craft beer. And uh, we decided to start this group together. And it was awesome. Uh, so basically what happened was, there are a couple different rules, is that you couldn't just get together and, and drink beer. There had to be some kind of educational component. So we might do something like we would go to a brewery and uh, get a tour of the brewery. Or we did a food and beer pairing. Or we did a a growler painting class. Um, so we'd always have... <laughs> I've never heard of that. That sounds really fun. Yeah. And, and so it wouldn't just be that we would get together and drink, but there would be some kind of educational component. 
um, that would go into it. And it was it was for anyone who identified as a woman could show up. And we would have a couple of events a year where we would say, yeah, bring, you know, you can bring a, a guy along if you want. But it's it's definitely a very different atmosphere when it's just a bunch of ladies together enjoying beer. I find that there's a lot less pressure. Like it's okay if, you know, whatever a woman wants to choose to drink, she's not going to get judged for it by whoever is with her. You know, if she wants to get the fruity beer, that's cool. But if she wants to get a really hoppy beer, that's fine too. And so it was, it's just a lot. And I, I found that a lot of women were more willing to like try different things in this atmosphere. And it was a really great experience. And I made a lot of friends from it. And it was really nice uh, because I also met a lot of non-attorney friends. (laughs) And as an attorney, I'm sure you know how important it is to have some people around you who are not attorneys. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to take the conversation anywhere else. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it was one of the things I'm so happy about. It also made me go out and make sure that I explored all of the breweries in Reno. At this point, I think I've been to almost all the breweries up north up there, not just Reno, but in Carson City and Virginia City and kind of the surrounding areas and Tahoe as well. Fantastic. What? Well, yeah. What a great way to connect with, as you say, with other people and just to get out and experience the scene. And to, and actually to put some, it's what I find with um, putting any amount of focus on something. So it's not just going out for a beer, but you're actually getting some education out of it. And it just changes the whole experience. It does. I think it's really helped me appreciate and really like hone my beer tasting. I mean, now I can really, I think actually I just really enjoy drinking a beer more now because it's more about the experience you know, I'll really like sit and taste it, not just guzzle it down. So I, I found that I've really gone full circle uh, with my beer experience and what I like now, where when I started out, I really kind of liked the Hefeweizen, something lighter. And then I progressed into the really big beers, like the really hoppy IPAs and the barrel-aged stouts. But now I've come to really enjoy just a really good lager pilsner, something that I could just like sit when it's hot outside, drink, you know, something really low in alcohol, maybe 4%. So it's just a really enjoyable experience now. Mm -hmm. And so I've pretty much gone full circle, I guess. Okay. Did you ever run into, trouble's not exactly the word, but I can't think of of a better one, where the education started taking too much of a front and center role and what I'm thinking is I had a discussion with um, with a sommelier recently at a Vancouver restaurant, and she was talking about the blind tastings that she does with other industry professionals. And I was curious as to whether that interfered in her ability to simply enjoy a glass of wine at home. So have you found that at all? Like, like you're maybe thinking too much about flavor profiles or analyzing the beer, or is it all a positive? You're just enjoying it more because you know more about it. I definitely think that that has been an issue. I was realizing probably maybe um, a year and a half ago, two years ago, that it was all about just like trying something different, that I would go and I would look at the menu and I would pick something that I didn't have. And I was kind of obsessed with trying to find something that I hadn't had before or looking for different flavors and there's um, an app called Untapped that's kind of like 
it's it's like social media for beer drinkers where you can check in what you're drinking. And I started to become obsessed with like, okay, I'm going to check in a lot of different kinds of beers and and not have the same thing twice. Right. But and, now and it, be, I'm, and it becomes I'm, more about filling up the app rather than enjoying the beer, perhaps. Exactly. And and I was almost getting fatigued with trying new things. And then I and now like when I go to um I've got my own favorite bar here that I found that's close to my house. I can just go and and I kind of tend to go with something that I know I'm going to like <laughs> rather than trying something different. And that's not to say that I won't still try different things, but I've but I actually made a conscious effort to just be like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to get something I like and I don't have to get the new thing just to make sure I have more check-ins on this app. Let's return to Vegas and can you tell me you were away about five years? Is that right? Yes. Okay. What? What? Did, Pretty much exactly five exactly years. <laughs> five years. Okay. And what have the changes been? What have you noticed that's that's new and different in the Vegas dining scene since you've come back? So definitely, just keeping in. I'll, I'll start just keeping with the craft beer vein and then move over to the food. Sure. But when I left Vegas, there were very few breweries. There were only a handful. And now I've come back and there's a ton. There's actually two that I haven't been to yet that have opened. I'm going to one of the two tomorrow. But uh, the the craft beer scene got a lot bigger. It's grown a lot. And there's some really great breweries here now. I'd still will say it may not. It's not going to be a popular opinion because there's a little bit of a Vegas-Reno rivalry. But I think Reno is a little bit ahead of the curve on this one. Okay. Um. <laughs> but Vegas still has some really great breweries, which is, it's really nice. And people are very supportive. As far as dining, Vegas always had a really great food scene. It's one of the things I have always loved about it. And it's one of the things that I missed the most when I was living in Reno is that the food scene is not nearly as good, but I would say the way that um, the craft beer scene is um, in Reno with it being better, that it's it's kind of like, the reverse with the dining scene where Reno was just starting to grow and get some really good dining when I left. Oh. Um, and it's still, it's still got a long ways to go, but I think all of the, all of the tech people coming in is really helping the food scene there. But in Vegas, it's just truly an international city. Now I would say uh, my, my boyfriend splits his time between LA and Vegas. So I also spend a decent amount of time in LA and I think the Vegas food scene is just as diverse at this at this point as LA. Any kind of food that you can think of, we've got it here. And I have been since I've come back, I've been so excited to try new restaurants. I've got a list um and I'm slowly making my way through them to to just try out different things. One of the things is that I really like is that there's a lot of lower cost options. And then of course, Vegas has the really high cost restaurants as well. If you're on the strip or somewhere around the tourism areas, but there's some nice little uh, mom and pop places that are more affordable here too, where you can get some really awesome food. Right. I've, I've noticed it seems to be getting more extreme, the difference between the strip and then off strip to, to make that very general division and now there seem to be, apart from high prices, there are these controversial 
what are they called? CNF charges or some concession fee charges. It basically seems the strip is doing everything it can to make things more expensive. But as soon as you step away even half a mile, it's just a dramatically different scene and a dramatically cheaper scene. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, as a local, we don't go on the strip that often anyway. Um, There would be times when I wanted to celebrate like a great milestone in my life, you know, graduating from law school or something like that, where you really want the the strip dining experience. And there's really nothing like the strip dining experience. It is it is world class. It's awesome. But but you are um, going to pay for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's it'll be really expensive. I, I think that's one of the bigger things I've noticed since I've been back is before I would maybe occas- occasionally go to the strip. And now I am pretty much absolutely avoiding it at all costs. I think I've been, um, I had one girlfriend come down from Reno to visit me and I took her and her daughter to the strip and we kind of did the whole tourism thing, went to the M&M factory and stuff. Right. And it was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So that was one of the times I've been to the strip. And then another time I had to go pick up, uh, I had some friends through work that were here for a work meeting and they were staying on the strip and I went and picked them up <laughs> and then immediately left. So those are the times I've been on the strip since I've moved back. <laughs> really? Wow. So it really is the exception rather than the, rather than the rule. Would, would that hold true for most locals, do you think? Yes, it's definitely true for most locals. And, and the thing is too, like everyone thinks, the, the question I get the most when people find out that I'm from Vegas is they're like, oh, what casino do you work for? I've actually never worked on the Strip at all. And, th- and that may not be true for most locals. I mean, the casino industry is very big here. And I have, and especially now since I have a more diverse friend group, I do have friends in the industry now. And so they will, you know, have worked in casinos around the Strip or something like that. But I would say for the most part, locals don't really go on the Strip for entertainment. I've been taking a lot of out-of-town visitors now to uh, downtown Vegas. Yes. That's where a lot more of the locals will hang out um, in a district called Fremont East. And it kind of has some like cool hipster type bars. Um, I just went there last night actually to celebrate my sister getting her nursing license. And it's that's kind of like the the place where you'll find more locals okay. hanging out. Fantastic. Where, where were you last night? Um, so last night uh, we went to the a bar called uh, Velveteen Rabbit. It's oh. a really cool uh, hipstery cocktail lounge. It was my first time going there. Okay. Um, I've, I've read about it, but I haven't been yet. It's own, It's Is it owned by two women? Is that right? Yes. Okay. And I actually think that one of them went to law school with oh, me. Oh, really? <laughs> but a couple of years after. Okay. Yeah. So we, we would have, she was in her first year when I was on my third year. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's great. Another another um, food law connection. I love it. <laughs> yes. And then uh, we we also went to the downtown cocktail room, which is probably my favorite bar on in Fremont East. And not a lot of people know about it because it's kind of just off of Las Vegas Boulevard. Okay. It's speakeasy style. It's It's kind of hard to... It used to be really hard to find the entrance, right? but I think they realized they were too hard to find, so they put up a big sign. Um, now it's still a little bit hard to figure out how to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> is is that the one that's right across from uh, what used to be that giant pint of Guinness, and now it's a giant pint of root beer? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's directly across from there. Got it. Okay. I still haven't been in there, but I will check it out. So that's a place you would recommend then? 
Yes, I love it. They've got really great cocktail drinks. And if you are a fan of absinthe, which I am not, <laughs> they always have some absinthe on a drip system. Yes. And that's kind of one of the things they're known for. But I usually get just a really great cocktail there when I go. Okay. How about some other favorite places, Laura, that you would point us to either either on the beer cocktail side or the or the food side, and it could be, uh, you know, downtown Fremont East or, or elsewhere, I'm, I'm going to guess off strip, but I'd love to hear some, maybe one or two, you know, sort of high end celebratory places and, and maybe a hole in the wall or two that, that I just won't know about and others won't know about unless we're local. Yes, yes. So just sticking with Fremont East, one more time is that um, Atomic Liquors is down there on the end. I didn't make it there last night. But that's kind of my favorite place that I've been taking out of town people to because it's one of the oldest bars in Las Vegas. It's called the Atomic Lounge because they used to sit on the roof and watch the um, atomic testing. (laughs) (laughs) That is just, oh man, I can hardly take that in. That is so out there. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And if you go inside, it's kind of a blast from the past because they have all of these vintage, like a jukebox and a, a vintage cigarette machine. And um, the decor is uh, very 1950s. And I really like sitting outside underneath the giant neon sign that says Atomic, Atomic Liquors. Liquors on it. <laughs> Love it. I heard that their their liquor license is something like, the liquor license number is something like 00006 or something. Like it's one of the very first that, that was issued. Yeah. I think I heard that same thing. And um, a lot of people know because when uh, the Anthony Bourdain visited there when he went to Vegas. And so a lot of people know it from that. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but it's it's pretty cool. So as far as regular hangouts, just when I was up in Reno, there was this really great beer bar <laughs> called Beer Envy. It had 60 tats. All the, I, I knew the, um, some of the owners... Um, the bartenders were all awesome. A lot of them are my friends still. And it was just this really great place where I would go. And if I, you know, wanted to chill out after work and meet some friends, we could go there and just have a good time. It was really nice. It was kind of like my cheers. Okay. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I came back to Vegas, I really wanted to find something like that. And uh, I, I actually found it pretty much right before <laughs> I moved back to Vegas when I came back uh, the Thanksgiving. Uh, before I moved back, um, there's this really great bar called a uh, 595 Craft and Kitchen. Okay, it's actually a restaurant too, not just a bar, and they have really awesome food. Best way to describe the food is sort of like Asian fusion. It's a lot of like kind of pub food, but with an Asian influence. Interesting. Okay, and um, that's definitely one I have not heard of. Whereabouts is it? It is at uh, it's a Tropicana and Rainbow on the corner. It's so it's probably about if you're staying on the strip, if you're on the south end of the strip, it's probably about a less than 15 minute drive to get there. They have a decent amount of taps like they're they're much smaller than the bar that I went to in Reno. So they don't have 60 taps, Okay, <laughs> but they do have I think they probably have about 30. They always have a variety of local beers on tap as well. And all the bartenders are really friendly there, too. Um, the owner's really cool. And it's it's just a, it's a really great neighborhood place. 
One of the things that I definitely got used to up in Reno is that uh, a lot of the bars up there do not have smoking. And I had forgotten that some of the bars down here do. But there's no smoking at 595 Ah. Craft and Kitchen, which I'm very happy about. Yes, that would make it something of an oasis in Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, it's basically my neighborhood spot. And... And I take, when all my friends come to visit me, I always take them there. And I love that they've got great beer, but they also have really good food. Okay. So that's that's one place. And then recently, I just checked out this restaurant called Mordeo for the very first time. If we're talking about a big celebratory night out, this place was amazing. Okay. <laughs> and more And sorry, could you spell it? Yes, it's M-O-R-D-E-O. D-E-O, Mordeo. Okay, and this is another new yes. one to me. This is great. Yes, it hasn't been open too long, actually, only a few months. But it's kind of a s- small plate, shareable type place. It's located actually in the middle of our Chinatown district. But it's not really, I, I don't know how to describe the type of food other than that it's small plates and shareable. It's not really Asian. It's not really Spanish or Italian or anything. It's it's just kind of a mixture a lot of different things they have like different you know you could get like a cheese plate or or you could get some really great uh they had some skewers like i said it wasn't asian but they definitely had like asian skewers there (laughs) and then the highlight is that we had the whole um there were four of us and we got this tomahawk steak Mm -hmm. that they brought it out raw to show you (laughs) oh and then they took it back and cooked it for us and it just very lightly seasoned, like, you know, with salt and pepper. And then they came and uh, cut it up for us and brought it out still kind of sizzling to to the to our seating area. And it was so delicious. We really enjoyed it. Wow. Nice. I've, ne- I've never heard of um, a restaurant doing that with a steak. It makes me think of, you know, a king crab coming out where they where they present the live crab yes. and then take it back. But that's a great idea with a tomahawk, too. And they also have a lot of really great wine there. I'm also really into wine. So okay, <laughs> a really great wine selection. And another interesting thing about it is it's actually all bar seating um, all throughout. And we had bar style seating that was right next to the kitchen. So they were preparing everything right in front of us. So you can ask to sit there. Um, it's actually a lot of fun to sit there and, and watch them actually preparing your food. Just, you know, maybe like, Eight feet away, right, I don't right, know. <laughs> just a few feet away. Okay, that sounds great. I think still the best steak I've ever eaten. I was in Vegas on a solo trip and I went to, I think I was staying in the Venetian and I went to the now closed Carnivino and yes. I sat at the bar just on my own and chatted with the bartender and... I guess their reserve dry aged steaks was the big deal there. And I was, I was looking at the menu and there was a ribeye, there was a ribeye for two on the menu. And it was, I think $74. And the bartender said, Oh, we've got a, we've got a special ribeye uh, for one on the menu tonight. And it's really good. And uh, he recommended it. So I said, okay, sure. That sounds great. And it came out and it was absolutely fantastic. They carved it. And as I say, best steak I've ever had. And then the bill came and I was thinking, well, it's got to be less than the $74 steak for two. But I guess this was a more specially aged steak because it was 95. <laughs> yes. And anyway, I tried to get over that and just focus on the fact that it was the best steak I'd ever had. But <laughs> it was a great experience, but a little eye popping when the bill came. 
Yeah. And the funny thing that, that you would mention Carnivino, because that was kind of my aspirational restaurant for so long. I mean, as you know, when you're in law school, you don't really have a lot of uh, funds just, to just work with. cash, yeah. Yeah. And so throughout, I when I when I met my boyfriend, my boyfriend used to be in the restaurant industry. He used to own restaurants and he also worked in the liquor industry um, for a distributor selling booze. So he had been to a lot of the strip restaurants and gotten to even at most of these places for free. (laughs) And so, and he told me about Carnivino when we were in law school and I kind of became, I was like, yes, that's where I want to go. And then um, I finally got to go there um, actually after I moved to Reno, one of the times I came back to visit my parents for Thanksgiving, uh, my boyfriend and I went there finally. It was really good. It was, at the time, it was one of the best steaks I've ever had. And I, I did not get the dry aged steak. Um, I actually have a I have a funny story about uh, my old boss. Okay, <laughs> uh, at a, a law firm I used to work for. My old boss is uh, quite a character. He uh, he would admit it. Um, he has a very big personality, and he always used to like to take clients to Carnivino. It was one of his favorite restaurants. And when I was a law clerk working for him, he would tell me, "Okay, make the reservation." And then I would have to call a few days before to see if they had that uh, that dry-aged steak. I can't remember. It's like the 120 days or something like yeah. that. Or maybe it was 365. I, I, I actually yeah. can't remember I the exact they, number. I think they had a range. They had, And some of them did go up to maybe, yeah, a couple hundred days or something. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Whichever one was the extreme <laughs> aged one. And so I was supposed to call and say I was calling on behalf of my boss. Right. <laughs> and... I would when I called and I would say he has a reservation for tomorrow and I want to know if you have the you know the whatever age dry age steak available and if they said no then I would say he would like to cancel his reservation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was yeah I've I've told this story so many times and it's very funny so I have a lot of Carnivino related stories actually <laughs> and I only ate there the one time <laughs> okay that's great I understand that the former executive chef and I've forgotten her name now uh I've forgotten her last name Nicole I think is her first name I think she has opened up an off strip restaurant after Carnivino closed down Ooh. okay I will have to that that is new to me I will have to find that yeah, out yeah I'm pretty sure about that so I'll, I'll, I'll look that up after we're after we're done recording, but that could be a one worth checking out too. Yeah. So also speaking of steak, yeah. um, one of this great steak place that opened up, I think it hasn't even been open a year. It's maybe only been open since maybe the end of last year or the beginning of this year. Um, it's called Cleaver and it's actually owned by, I think it's owned by an attorney actually. Okay. There's this other kind of speakeasy style restaurant called Herbs and Rye. That, that one I has, have heard like, of, but I haven't been to it yet. Yeah, so it's got really great cocktails, a pretty good beer list, um, some really great steaks. And basically, Cleaver is just a larger version of Herbs and Rye that just opened up. I've been to Cleaver a couple times now for different people's birthdays, and they have some really great steaks. Um, one of the best things about Cleaver <laughs> is that they have a happy hour that goes from 5 p.m. until 8 p.m., and most of their steaks are actually half off during happy wow. hour. And then they've got, I think, a late night happy hour from midnight till 2 a.m. Okay. So <laughs> actually in law school, uh, my boyfriend and I would study in the law library until they would kick us out at midnight. 
And then <laughs> we would sometimes go in our insomnia to Herbs and Ryan do their uh, midnight to 2 a.m. half off steak. Yeah. <laughs> that's per- it fits the law student's schedule and budget. That's great. Yes. Yeah. That's one thing I've noticed and I find so funny and uh, quite delightful about Vegas is that so many places have these dual happy hours, right? Because they're because the the clock, the schedule is just just so different in Las Vegas from other places, and they just keep going. Yeah, this the schedule's different, and then also um, a lot of those late night happy hours actually cater toward people in the industry when they're getting off work. So I've never been in the food industry, but my boyfriend tells me that when sometimes when you get off, like if the restaurant closes at ten o'clock, you clean up, you're there for another couple hours, and then you're just awake and you can't go to sleep for a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. So. Yeah, so you would go out and and there were I I think there's actually a place called I want to say it may not be around anymore but there was some kind of late night uh bar or lounge called Dre's and I think a lot of the industry people would go there because they would have like a lot of late night um DJs and stuff like that that really catered toward industry people. Okay, that makes sense. Um, is that Dre's that was in I the the name that I know Dre's is in um the Cromwell, former yeah, Barbary Coast. Yep, that's okay. it. Yeah, it used to be a Barbary Coast. That's yeah. why I was trying to remember. I was like, what did it used to be that's called? Right. Yeah, it was called the Barbary yeah. Coast before Cromwell. Yeah. <laughs> I remember going, we had a tradition with some buddies that um, uh, used to go to Vegas. We'd go once a year and we would, the, the kickoff meal was always uh, the Victorian room in, in Barbary Coast. And it was just this ancient restaurant that was open 24 hours a day. The food wasn't actually very good, but for whatever reason, <laughs> it just became our tradition. And so we would go for, you know, steak and eggs at midnight in the Victorian room. There's so many places like that in Vegas, like where it's, it's kind of more about the atmosphere. I think the pepper mills are a really good example oh, of that. I don't know if you've ever I been have. there. Yeah, I took my nephew to Vegas when he turned 21, and we just had such a good time. And uh, I had learned about the pepper mill just before that trip. So we went there. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's it's like a blast from the past, like a, a blast from the past in like a really kitschy way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> that was great. Can you comment a little bit? I, I don't want to leave the Vegas food scene, but in, in the interest of time, and I do want to get your thoughts on a couple of other points here. And one is is a trip that you mentioned, which was re- earlier this year to Scandinavia with your boyfriend, uh, who's yes. a, another food enthusiast lawyer. And of course, as, as you say, has worked in the industry. Do you have any thoughts on maybe arising out of that trip on just on differences between, and this is a very big general question, but between food and dining experiences, take it, you know, could be Vegas to Stockholm, or it could be North America to Europe generally, anything that stood out for you? Yeah, so actually, my boyfriend and I for a few weeks after we're talking about how maybe this is more of a general North America compared to Europe observation, but the food quality seemed really great at at all levels there. Like even at the, you know, at the cheaper restaurants where we're here in the U.S., I don't know if it's the case in Canada, but in the U.S., if you're going, you know, there's maybe some restaurants that (laughs) are the actual food quality is not so great. (laughs) Like the, the actual ingredients themselves are not so great. Yes, definitely. Um, But there it just seemed like that the, the actual quality of the ingredients was much better. We did not have a bad meal at all in Scandinavia. Everything was absolutely great. And it's not necessarily that we were going to these, the great celebratory 
places as you were speaking of earlier, but just all kinds of like, even the sort of more fast casual type stuff was really great. We noticed that every, all the meals seemed a lot more balanced, maybe not like the gigantic portions and then all sorts of different like ingredients on your plate. I always notice the difference in the eggs whenever I go places. They've got that like almost orange, orange yolk. Yes. And and I noticed that too when uh, when we went to Japan last year, it was the same thing. Like we would look at the eggs, and I was like, the eggs are a different color here. <laughs> <laughs> right. I noticed that here, but it's really just selection among different producers. I guess when I'm able to get really, really local, fresh, organic eggs, they do seem to be much darker, much closer to orange. Yeah. So the the food scene was. We didn't we didn't have a bad meal. It was great. I did really miss out on the spicy foods. Okay, sure. <laughs> when I was there. Sure. Yeah. How how about the um, how about the level of service because Vegas is known rightly I think for just incredible customer service. Any differences there? You know, not so much. Okay. I would say it's really similar oh, and and I found everyone to be really friendly as well. Um and we went to Norway, Sweden and Denmark and and I I think I think in Norway they were the when we were chatting with uh, one of the guys at a restaurant there. He was telling us that people always think Norwegians aren't very friendly, but I didn't find that to be the case okay. at all. Yeah. yeah, everyone was really friendly, and yeah, the service was great everywhere we went. So um, I definitely did not notice any differences as far as level of service. Okay, that's good to hear. Were there any standout dishes from Scandinavia? And and maybe you can place it into any global cuisine preferences, because I know from a food blog that you have done in the past, Earth to Laura, that, that exploring different types of cuisine and dishes from around the world is important to you. Were there, were there any standouts uh, on this trip? Pretty much all of the seafood okay. I had was really great. I'm trying to remember. It, it just failed me. We went to this um, seafood restaurant in Oslo where you actually had to go take a ferry to go to uh, one of the little islands. I know there's, a, there's an actual word <laughs> for the little islands that make up Norway. But the only thing on this island is this seafood restaurant. So we took the ferry, and the ferry was actually driven by the owner of the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And it's, I think his grandfather uh, started this restaurant. And, and so it's been in his family all of this time. And basically, the menu changes every day based on the type of seafood that they have, what they have available. And it's always stuff that's like they're either they've got like a teeny little, you know, tanks and farm on their on their own island that they can draw from or just like draw from the water to whatever they've got the chef has enough of to make something with that day is what the menu is and the seafood was incredibly fresh i mean i'm in vegas and it is the desert right. <laughs> and uh, so i i know that it's something like you're supposed to you shouldn't order seafood if you're looking around and you don't see any water that's actually not the case in vegas because uh because of the high level of service, as you've mentioned, um, we we have fish flown in every day. I know there's a couple of Japanese restaurants here that they actually they'll, they'll fly the fish twice a week straight from Japan, and it comes overnight. Right, right. It's it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Every time I'm having seafood in Vegas, I try not to think of the environmental impact, but it's it is quite amazing yes. <laughs> what can what you can access there. Yes, but in oh my gosh, the the seafood at this place was so good, and and the seafood the entire time was. Just so so tasty. I, I had so much seafood and and I, I I think about it 
I'm, I'm still thinking about it. It's been, uh, we went at the end of July and, and I still just think about how awesome the seafood was there. <laughs> okay. Good. It's, uh, we're, we're planning a, a European trip next year, but probably more south, uh, Spain and Italy. But I've never been to Scandinavia, so it's definitely on the to-do list. So even more so now. I highly recommend it. It's great. I know up where you are, the, they have the fjords. So it may, not have been, it may not be as impactful for you as it was for me. But that was one of the greatest things is that we took this train ride to the fjords and we stepped off the train and I was looking at them and I actually started crying wow. because it was so, so beautiful. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure it would be quite different even from here. Although we've got the ocean, of course, but yeah, no, I've got to get there. I've got to get there. Well, listen, Laura, just a few more questions. One, do you notice, I know you haven't worked in the, in the food industry yourself, uh, but your boyfriend certainly has, and you're, you're certainly a food uh, enthusiast. Do you see any similarities between the two worlds we know, which is which is law and cooking? One that I can give an example of, I've, I've spoken of it before on the show, is that for some reason, both jobs seem to be glamorized. Being a lawyer is a big deal. Being a chef is a big deal. And not to, not to undersell them, they both require a bunch of hard work uh, to do well and some talent. But the reality of the jobs, I think, is just a lot of plain hard work. They're not really as glamorous as people yeah. perceive them to be when you're actually in the trenches. But it, just curious if, uh, if you have any thoughts on, on similarities you may have seen. That was the first thing I thought of when you asked me that question. It's definitely that they both require a lot of hard work. You know, I've never worked in, as you said, I've never worked in the food industry, so I don't know firsthand, but my boyfriend tells me that he was just always working. And as I said earlier, like when you get off, you're still on really hyped up. And I think it's it's really similar in the law. I am very lucky in that I work for the state. So my schedule isn't quite what it was in private, but I have worked in private practice before and, and the hours are long, like you might be there till midnight. And then because it's so mentally taxing, it's almost like your brain can't go to sleep. Right. And I think it must be the same in the restaurant industry as well. My boyfriend owns his own firm and he's, he's literally always working, yeah. but he, he told me actually that he worked even more when he owned restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't even imagine. <laughs> and you're right. It's definitely something that is glamorized. I would also say that maybe, <laughs> I don't know if that's quite what you were looking for, but maybe like the, the sort of the sense of humor yeah. <laughs> is similar in that uh, maybe it's the sense of humor might be a little bit more um, maybe off color or more yeah. like edgy, uh, dark, <laughs> edgy. Yeah, that's what that's the word I want. Yeah, more edgy or dark. <laughs> the The jokes that you make are <laughs> similar when you're in the restaurant industry and when you're in the when you're a lawyer. Yes. I'm not sure what that is. Maybe some kind of coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? You're, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that before, but it's true. There is definitely a similarity. And I think, yeah, it's probably true. It probably is a coping mechanism. Because one of the other similarities, sadly, on a darker side of that concept, I guess, is that both industries actually have pretty high addiction rates and substance abuse rates. Yeah. Right? Yes. A lot of, a lot of substance abuse. It started in law school. I mean, and and that's the thing. Like I, you know, I'm I'm a craft beer enthusiast, and you know, also a lawyer. I I have some lawyer friends that I think you know they just they drink a little too much. Yeah. They they go a little too far, right. and and I know that's an issue in the the restaurant industry as it well. Is. That yeah, really high 
especially alcoholism, I'm sure, I'm sure other kinds of substances as well. It's definitely a problem and it's just a really high stress. And I see some of my friends that are in private practice and they work their butts off. And, you know, the same with my boyfriend, always, always working. And it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's like the, you know, drinking or using is a kind of a way to just relax after that or something. I'm not right. sure. Yeah, no, I, but, I, I, um, I think it is. I think it is. And it's, it's on, on the positive side of that, we're starting to see more awareness and more discussion in the culinary world. And in my experience, it's been talked about a little bit more. And maybe just because lawyers traditionally have had more resources, there are more, you know, resources and counseling and that kind of thing that people can access. But it's good to see that that's really starting to take off in the culinary world as well. And people are at least talking about these things. Yeah, really coming down to the last couple of questions here. What can people do? This is a question I I often ask of of chefs, lawyers, sommeliers, anybody I'm talking to, because there's such a focus on the customer service side and um, on, on how restaurants and bars can improve their game and bring a better experience to their guests. What can people do themselves to make sure they have the best possible experience when they go out? So for me, it's about being really open to new experiences, to trying new things. I was just joking around with my sister last night that I'll basically eat anything. There's only one thing I won't eat. And that one thing is cilantro. <laughs> I'm one of the people that hates oh, it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's a small but very dedicated vocal camp. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, just being open to trying new things. I have so much fun. And then really... I would say on on my end, you know, it's all about customer service, but on the on the customer's end, just really engaging with your wait staff. I I love trying to have, you know, an appropriate level of conversation. Obviously, you don't want to pull them over and just have a full-on conversation with them, but just really interacting with them and and realizing like kind of almost having like a, a friendship type experience, even if you just met someone kind of playing off their personality and really talking to them and and having a back and forth about the food. I always like to ask, you know, what's your favorite thing on the menu and why? And always ask for suggestions. And I love sitting at the bar when any kind of restaurant that has it, just because it's it's really great to just chat with the people behind the bar. There's actually one of the restaurants I know you featured on your podcast, uh, Black Sheep. I actually, when I think the first week when we moved here, my boyfriend and I met up there and sat at the bar and we had a great conversation with the bartender back there. And he told us about his favorite dishes and his favorite drinks. And we've gone back a few times and sometimes it's just a great experience to go and hang out with server that you're familiar with. And so it's kind of like going out with your friends every time you eat. Right. I would also say just that for me, eating and drinking is a very social experience, especially when I'm going out. Although I do very much like to cook and have people over. I love having dinner parties. But it's just to make it more of kind of a social fun experience for everyone, including the employees, I think just makes it a better experience overall. Agreed. Fully love it. Well, listen, Laura, where is the best place? Is Instagram the best place? And and your website, your blog, those the best places for yeah. people to keep track of your your dining and craft beer experiences? Yes, definitely. Um, my Instagram, I'm very active. My uh, name is Earth2, the number two, Laura, <laughs> Earth2Laura. And that's actually uh, my blog as well as earth2laura.com. 
I'm debating if I should keep my blog going. Uh, basically, my blog is that I, I take recipes from around the world and I'm trying to cook a, a different recipe from every country, like recreating it in my own kitchen. And my sister told me last night that she really misses my okay. blog. <laughs> So I might start it up again. (laughs) I hope you do. I would encourage you to do that. And maybe feature your sister's macarons because she's a she's really an accomplished baker, isn't she? Yes, she is an awesome baker. And that was actually one of the things she said yesterday. She said, would it would it help out if she's like, maybe I could make some kind of baked good from every country to pair with the dinner. And I was like, that would be amazing if you would like to do that. Absolutely. Yes. Well, good. My my vote is strongly in in support. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to let her know that. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, listen, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Cheftimony. It's been great to talk to you in detail about food, craft beer, Vegas, around the world. Uh, So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Graham, for having me. Thanks, Laura, for a great talk. I learned a lot and I really enjoyed speaking with you. And the release of this episode is very timely, actually, because my wife and I are going to be in Las Vegas this very weekend. I'm really looking forward to meeting with Laura live and in person at the undoubtedly amazing Atomic Liquors. I've also got plans to meet up with some podcasting friends, Chris Kim of the Faces and Aces Las Vegas podcast and Sonia Swanson of the Spicy Eyes podcast, and with my chef friend Bart Copps, the camper chef himself plus a few other friends in the Vegas dining scene. My full trip report on this weekend's trip to Las Vegas will be coming up soon right here on Cheftimony. Before you hear that, though, please do take a few minutes to rate Cheftimony, to give it a star rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or many of the other podcast directories. And if you have a few more minutes, please consider leaving a written review for the show. Doing either or certainly both of those things will definitely help other people to discover Cheftimony. I'd really appreciate it. And as always, I love to hear from you. So if you've got a comment or a question for the show, a topic suggestion perhaps, or maybe there's a chef you'd like to hear interviewed, or perhaps you know a lawyer with an interesting connection to the food scene. For any of that, please just get in touch with me. You can do that on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and now Twitter. Or you can send me a good old-fashioned email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, thanks very much for joining me and joining Laura Tucker today here on Cheftimony. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again in a week right here on the Cheftimony Podcast. Podcast.